We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Men from Moto. Digital strategies with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Intellect, vast, cool, and unsympathetic. Broadcast to the world with the uncanny help of Mana Deprived and FaceToFaceGames.com. Greetings, people of Earth. We're the men from Moto, and you're listening to episode 96, Splish Splash. My name is David Seville, and I have Travis Sowers and Dutch, apparently, with us this week. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Dave? Did you feed your cat today, or is he just grumpy? Yeah, I fed my cat. He's he's happy. He just wants some attention and wants to be a lab cat. How uh, how are you doing this week? How was your first day of Ultimate Masters? It was actually a lot of fun. Uh, there's a lot going on in this format. It, it was a lot to kind of grok and take in at once. But I think I understand why the removal is relatively bad in that you're you're kind of trying to do like reanimator things or, you know, madness shenanigans and, and you don't want that disrupted too hard. Uh, but I've had fun so far and I'm looking forward to playing it some more tomorrow. Yeah, it's funny because when we called this the episode a couple of weeks back Graveyard Masters, um, I didn't realize that it was actually Graveyard Masters as in the back of the box, a sealed box of product describes how it's a graveyard set. Yeah. And I didn't think that it was on purpose, but uh, here we are. Yeah, I, I I played five games of of Ultimate Masters today, and all of them revolved around the graveyard. So it's like, yeah, this is this is kind of what they're doing here. Okay, I guess the only thing we're missing missing was a threshold would have would have made it all complete. <laughs> yeah, but that was just such a miserable me- mechanic. Although a werebear would have been cute. How many cards do I have in my graveyard? Five. I mean, we have to count that in standard and limited right now, anyway, with the the drakes and and things like that. So I don't count uh, arena and moto. Do that for me. It's That's great. True. I only ever have to count to twenty. It's wonderful. How many times have you got got by beacon bolt in your graveyard, though? Tell me. Uh, and be n- honest. None, because I play Golgari. <laughs> but not I, even in limited. Not I've even. I've had it once in limited, and I remember going to cast it and then being like, wait a minute, and stopping and counting. So it, I had the opportunity to get got once, but I caught it. I think I got got by it twice. I think everybody does eventually, so. Yeah, I'll just play more with it. It'll eventually get me, yeah. Your time will come. Yes. So this this week is another draft level up episode. We are doing the episode we've been talking about doing for a couple of weeks now, Splashing. Uh, you basically wrote an entire essay on Splashing in Limited, and this applies to Draft Not Sealed. This is purely from a draft angle. Uh, we're going to take you through kind of the who, what, where, when, why, how to splash, um, with the exception of who. And um, we're going to give you all the details if you're new to drafting magic, or maybe you want to get a little bit better and you've been playing a lot of three-color decks in two-color formats. Hopefully this will teach you when and how to splash correctly and splash essentially for maximum value. There are people out there that will play five or four colors frequently. There are people that will play splash cards um, that are, you know, that go against some of the rules we're going to talk about today. Um, but, you know, those players are usually more advanced and they kind of know what they're taught. They know what they're doing. Uh, they know the risks that they're taking. So we're going to give you kind of a basic beginner's guide to splashing um, and kind of take you to that next level in your drafting experience and uh, hopefully improve your play 
and drafting on uh, on Arena. Heck yeah, Arena or Magic Online or at the local shop wherever you play. And Dave mentioned in our pregame show that it's worth pointing out that like this is going to be format dependent. So I'm not talking about a, a crazy wacky color set like Cons of Tarkir or Shards of Alara where you were encouraged to play three and even four colors. We're talking about for predominantly two color formats where you're drafting along and you want to splash a card. Um, yeah. In most draft formats, so like we're a little spoiled with Guilds of Ravnica because we have, you know, all of the dual lands. But then again, it's a different set because there's only kind of quote unquote five, um, you know, viable color combinations um but in most draft formats most regular draft formats that aren't gold colored um you know your fixing is usually a couple of dual lands that aren't in every single pack and then maybe an evolving wilds or something like that so it can be really different and we've had consum tark here with the tri lands and things like that so this applies to maybe 80 percent of formats but also the general rules you know, while they get a little fuzzier, they still apply to, the, you know, the, the cons of Tarkir block and, and the, the blocks with really good fixing. It's just you're also going to see people play four and five color decks and be a little more aggressive about their splashing. But these basic rules generally apply. All right. Well, let's let's dive right in and make a splash. Step one, I want to clearly define what splashing is. So we're going to teach you the rules. You can decide to break them later. But here's my rule for splashing. Splashing is playing one or two cards that are not the same color as your main colors. They have only a single off color in the mana cost. If you are playing three or more cards that are not your two main colors, or if you're playing cards with double pips, you're not splashing, you're playing three colors. So use an example of playing a Banefire in your green-white deck. Banefire is red X, X damage to target creature or player. And if you're in a green-white deck and that's your only red card, we would say that you're splashing Banefire in your green-white deck. An example of what I would say is not splashing is, for example, playing a Glorybringer in your green-white deck, which is three red-red uh, for a 4-4 four, four haste that can deal four damage when it attacks. It's a great card, uh, but you really can't splash that. Um, and let's dive some more into this, too. So next up is like, if that's what we're going to define splashing as, we're going to talk about why and when to splash. So for me dipping in here, we talked about drafting Brave in our Draft 101 course. The first two letters in Brave were bombs and removal. And I would say that that's really what you're splashing for, is bombs or removal if you don't have enough. Right? Have you ever ended up with so much removal in your main two colors that you really didn't need a splash? I had seven luminous bonds in a draft on Arena the other day. Yeah, you you really don't need to splash <laughs> at all in that. No. Um, so, like, I would always splash for a bomb, but I would only splash for removal if I actually need it. Right. So if I've got you know one luminous bonds, and then all of a sudden a lightning strike comes by. Perhaps I'm going to be more interested in that than I normally would be for my my black-white deck, as an example. And I, I liked when we did the Draft 101 and 102 courses giving some examples of each of these things. So I mentioned here a, a bomb that was easily splashable uh, was Tendershoot Dryad from Ixalan Block. This was 5 and a green for a 2-2. Two -two. At the beginning of each turn, it made a 1-1 one -one Sapperling. And if you had 10 or more permanents in play, all of your Sapperlings got plus 2, plus 2. 
the card was super unbeatable in in Ixalan. Do you remember playing with or against this? Oh, all the time. It was like, if your opponent stuck it, not only did they get an immediate token out of it, but if you didn't have an immediate answer, you were getting hit for a bunch of damage the next turn, and there was nothing you could do about it. Yeah, and 3-3 was kind of the average stat line for Ixalan and Rivals. So, like, 3-3 Sapperlings were actually terrifying. And I mentioned, too, uh, a splashable removal spell, just as an example. Dave mentioned having seven Luminous Bonds. If you're looking to splash removal in M19 currently on Arena, you could probably find a Luminous Bonds to splash. Uh, that's two and a white for an enchantment aura. Enchanted creature cannot attack or block. Yeah, so... And, and you think you're going to go over this in, in your next point here, but, like, you know, the reason Tendershoot Dryad is just so splashable is because it's such a powerful card. Obviously, the single pip, but it's it's... It's a it's a card that you're casting late in your curve, even if you're ever casting it on curve. Um, so it kind of gives you that opportunity to find your your lands to be able to play it, and it's a combination of of those things that make it worth the risk to splash. So whenever you're splashing, you have to remember that you're taking a risk, right? You're you're risking that you're going to draw either the wrong lands, you know, and your splash, and you can't play your splash, or you draw draw or uh, draw your splash lands when you really need to draw your main lands in your opening hand, let's say. So, like, understand that, that the risk-reward ratio needs to be there. If you're risking, you know, 5 or, or 10%, let's say, you know, you're, the card you're splashing for needs to make up for that loss that you're going to take every once in a while. It needs to steal you games when you stick it. Obviously, it needs to be better than the risk that you're taking in order for it to, to be worth your while. So just keep that in mind. Like, when you're looking for things to splash, powerful is the key, or removing powerful things from your opponent's side of the board is also the key. Yeah, there's a, a little bit of a meme that started in my stream of there is no cost to splashing. Uh, if you type exclamation point splashing in my chat, it will actually link you to a picture of that meme. Because if you splash enough, and I will splash pretty liberally these days, it will eventually get you. Where you're, you're, you're splashing the Bane Fire in your green-white deck and you have an opener with two mountains and a bunch of green-white spells... And that's where you'll start to see there is no cost to splashing pop up. But we're, we're going to walk you through how to do this right, so that happens to you less often. I will mention before we move on to, to point number two, that for me, if a card is splashable, it moves it up just a little bit in the pick order while we're drafting. So if I'm looking, if, it, if I'm playing a, a deck with 10 swamps, murder is awesome. It's one of the best removal spells ever. If I'm playing 10 Swamps and 7 Planes, it's better than Luminous Bonds because it just kills the thing. But when I'm looking at a pack one, pick one, I'm probably still going to take Luminous Bonds over Murder because they both do mostly the same thing, kill the thing that I need to be dead, but Luminous Bonds is splashable whereas Murder is not. Murder costs colorless black black for an instant destroy target creature that's obviously better than Luminous Bonds, but not if it's in my sideboard. So when I'm making those early picks, I'll try to take things that I can splash. And then once I've actually established my color, that's where I'm like, sure, double black is no problem. Yeah, and, you know, some people do this a little more aggressively than others. But just having, you know, the the chance, the extra chance to play Luminous Bonds as your first pick is way better than somebody that never gets to play their first pick, for example. And better than somebody that takes the murder and forces black, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. that's a whole different trap. But I, Absolutely. I, I've mentioned here that I, I think splashed cards should be good 
either late game or off curve. This doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be expensive spells, although they often are. So I listed here some cards that you could splash, but you probably shouldn't. And I'm going to read the card and explain what it does, and then Dave's going to tell us why it's not a great splash. Goblin Crater Maker is one in a red for a 2-2 goblin. You can spend one in Sacket to deal two damage to target creature or to destroy target colorless permanent. Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons why I don't splash this card. Uh, one is, you know, it's, it's a great two-drop and it has upside, but most two-drops you know, aren't much worse than this card. Like, the card that I'm replacing, you know, for, for Goblin Crater Maker is not that much worse than Goblin Crater Maker. And when I get my Goblin Crater Maker late in the game, that two damage it can deal usually doesn't kill anything of importance. Sometimes it will, but sometimes it won't. I'd say most of the time it doesn't. Um, so you, you add those two things together, I can just put a 2-2 two, two Vigilance in its spot, and I, it's not going to kill anything in the late game, means that the only time that it's good for me is when I cast it on turn 2 or turn 3, generally speaking, and it's not worth the risk of putting it in my deck. Yeah, it, not only the risk of putting this in your deck, but also the risk of putting a, you know, a mountain and an, another fixer in here so that you can cast the darn thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think a lot will share that same story, but I, I listed three here. Uh, Danatha from Dominaria is two and a white for a 2-2 first strike Vigilance lifelink, uh, and she makes equipments and auras uh, cost one less to play. Yeah, she's just not high enough impact um to be to be splashing like she's a great card if you're already white um but she's really a card that you want to be playing on curve and then suiting her up on turn four and if she's in your opening hand and you don't have the white to, to cast her she's going to get stuck there till turn six turn seven and by that time she's usually outclassed by things on the other side of the board so she's she's she really shines on curve when you have a nice follow-up like an equipment or an aura to put on her or something else, or even just a four drop to play immediately after, and your opponent is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Exactly. And the last one I listed here was Nightville Sprite, uh, which is one in a blue for a one-two flyer. When it attacks, you can surveil for one. I mean, same thing. Like, this is the incremental advantage that it gets, and the earlier you play it, the better. Um, it doesn't block at all in the late game. Um, and it doesn't even attack in the late game usually. So even decks that are main decking this, uh, not or sorry, not splashing for it, but like playing it as a main color, um, you know, it usually gets shut down turn three, turn four, turn five sometimes, either by a spider or you know by a whatever three four flyer or something like that. Like there's a lot of things that can just shut this down. So what you'll notice about all of these cards, if you think back to the previous episodes that we're talking about drafting, is if you look at the quadrant theory on these. They're quite good on curve, not so hot late in the game. Like, there's mm. still some value there. Danith is still going to give you a decent blocker. Crater Maker is still a shock. The Nightville Sprite may actually still be able to attack, depending on the board state. But they're not amazing late game, and most two and three drops aren't. So that, that's nothing particular about these cards. They're all three very good cards that I'm very happy to play if I'm in those colors. I'm just not going to splash for them. Now, here I've listed three cards that I think you could splash, and you probably should. So I'm going to tell you about these and then have Dave tell you why these are good splashes. Uh, so first I listed Gravedigger. This is a classic splash for me, and I put it in just about every deck I can. Uh, it's three and a black for a 2-2 zombie. When it enters the battlefield, return target creature from your graveyard to your hand. 
Yeah, this is a, a great example of a card that you usually don't cast on curve, mm-hmm. um, unless you absolutely need to, unless you had a three drop that died. I think the only time this card is bad is like turn 40. <laughs> when you don't have another turn to play the card, you get back with Gravedigger. Sure. Um, so, like, if you're playing at any time between turn six and turn thirty-nine, it's a good splash, um, and it gives you that it gives you that great value, right? You're going to get your best card back or your second best card back, usually, um, especially if the game goes really long, and that kind of card advantage can you know really run over your opponent um, if if they don't have a way to answer it. So, and you get a two-two out of it. It's just huge value. It's probably you know the the prime example of a value card in in the brave kind of definition. I had another card listed here next, but I'm actually I've actually changed my mind and I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball and replace what we have on the notes with swords to plowshares because I think this is actually a great example of a cheap card that you would splash. This is an oldie and we don't get spells like this anymore, but you'll still see it in master sets and in cubes occasionally. It's white for an instant Exile target creature, its controller gains life equal to its power. It's only a single mana, but should we still splash this even though it's cheap? I mean, absolutely, because it's so powerful that, it, again, it doesn't matter what turn you cast it on. I, I can't remember the last time that I cast a, a Swords to Plowshares on turn one or turn two. Like, that just, just rarely yeah. happens, unless you're playing modern, which we're not. We're playing limited. Um, but it'll always kill something. There's not a lot out there with protection white anymore. Um, and when when you can answer your opponent's best card for one mana um, and still do something else that turn, let's say, it just opens up so many options for you. And it really it really allows you to be flexible with your, your cards and your decisions and your mana that you spend. Whereas if, if you had a murder, right, that's much harder to cast, um, but also like three times as expensive, um, you can't necessarily be as flexible and as open to what you kill with it because you're probably just trying to find a window so that you can play your six drop later on and not have to, you know, worry about not double spelling or some or not being efficient with your mana later in the game. So it just opens up so many options and um I would always splash it. Yeah. And I I just wanted to put in there an example of a card that's that's very cheap, but you would still splash. So don't get it mm-hmm. stuck in your head that you can only splash for six drops. That you really just want to make sure that it's good late game because that's probably when you're able to cast it. Um, and one last one here that I think also brings up a good point while we're talking about splashing is Tatiova Benthic Druid. Don't need to tell you what Tatiova does, Dave, but I will for the listeners. Uh, three blue-green for a 3-3 three, three Merfolk. When you play a land, you gain one life and draw a card. So this would be a good splash if you're already green or blue, Right? So you can splash one side of a gold card. If I know that I'm green, if I'm green-red, pretty deep into green-red, and I open a Tatiova pack three, if I've got a little bit of fixing already, I may just go ahead and grab that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the card advantage she can give you is just kind of incredible um, and turns all your lands into cantrips. Like, obviously, it's just super powerful. She's not going to win the game on her own, but she'll definitely take over the game. Um, and you know, you're drawing so many cards that if maybe you're splashing another, let's say blue card in your green, red deck or something like that, she also helps enable that in the late game as well, because you're drawing extra cards, um, you know, to make sure you're hitting the line drops and things like that. So yeah, she's just 
super consistent, super powerful. Um, and the easy splash, right? She's, she was my favorite splash in Dominaria, right up there with Slimefoot, I think. Yeah, I splash those two every time. But the, the big takeaway from this is you should splash for cards that are A, splashable, meaning they have one single colored pip in their mana cost. And it's okay if it's a gold card that you're splashing as long as you're maining one of the other two colors. And it should be a card that's powerful late game. Not necessarily expensive, but if it's a splash, you're probably not going to be able to curve into it, right? So if we really dug through the Annals of Magic, we could find some other cards that are inexpensive that you'd probably splash for. But they're all going to be cards that are good late game. So that's the real key there. They will often be expensive cards, four, fives, and sixes, but not always. Now, where are you at on splashed activated abilities or secondary abilities? So the card is, I'm trying to think, were, were the guild mages that were like a hybrid mana, hybrid mana? And then they they had one side or the other for the activated abilities. So it was possible to play like the Boros guild mage in your white green deck and then splash the other side where are you at splashing for those types of things so i I think i'll actually use an example from the ultimate master set that's out right now in a deck i already played today so i actually did what dave's talking about let me describe this for you i played a demir guild mage in my white blue deck and i had one swamp in that deck so here's how that works the Demir Guild Mage you could cast for Demir Demir, meaning you could either play Blue Blue, Black Black, or Blue Black. So in my deck, it was basically just two blue for the creature. Its activated ability was three and a blue, you draw a card, or three and a black, opponent discards a card. It was pretty easy for me to fit in that one swamp and an Evolving Wilds, because there was a Unburial Rites in the deck too, and say maybe I could activate the other side of this. So if I can fit that activation in, I'll absolutely do it. You'll see this sometimes on cards. If the card is good enough on its own and activating one of the abilities is good enough, I'll go for it. Uh, another example is Kazarov in Dominaria, which was a 7-drop in black with a red activated ability. Now, as I played with the card more and more, I recognized that it was just good enough to play even if I didn't have the red. But if I could sneak a red source in that deck, boy howdy was I happy to do it. Even if it was one of the bad fixers, and we'll, we'll get to those bad fixers. Uh, I'll mention this one specifically, but I loved having Llanowar Envoy in my green-black deck that had Kazarov. Because every once in a while, I could just reach out and torch something. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it there's a different level of splashing if you're doing it just for an activated ability. Keep that in mind. Like, the, the cost is still there. But the cost of getting cards stuck in your hand isn't there as often. Um, you're just really at the cost or the mercy of your lands at that point and making sure you don't get your ugly splash lands in your opener or something like that. But just an interesting kind of aside that we didn't really get into. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Um, so now that you know what to splash, it's it's important that, to know that you can really only splash if you got fixing. So what is fixing? I think it's important that we clearly define that. Fixing is a way to make a color or colors of mana that are not your main colors without compromising your ability to cast spells from your main two colors. So I could just jam three mountains in my white-green deck to splash that Banefire, but I'd really rather not do that because then I'm going to end up with more hands where I've got green cards and mountains and planes and I can't cast any of them and I don't want to see that. 
So as going through here, I broke Fixin down into basically three qualities. We'll call it good, medium, and bad. So the, the good Fixins are things that I'm excited to play when I'm splashing, and some of them I'll even play if I'm not splashing. So I, I think some of the best ones that you'll ever find are dual lands or tri-lands. An example here is Submerged Boneyard. You'll find this in a lot of sets, from Corsets to Shadows over Innistrad. Demir Guildgate is the version that's in the Is It One, or, or the Is It One, the Ravnica sets, uh, because gates matter. But Submerged Boneyard enters the battlefield tapped, taps for blue, and taps for black. So this gives you your main color and your splash color, or two sources of your main color. So again, in, in that um, green-white deck where I'm splashing Banefire, if I put three mountains in it, but I also put in three white-green dual lands, I'm okay. So e even dual lands for your main two colors are going to help you with your splash colors because they're finding you additional colors of them. So like, I I'm huge on dual lands or tri-lands in any formats where they have them. Sometimes they'll appear at common, sometimes at uncommon, sometimes at rare. So you can't always necessarily grab these, but if you're splashing, they go up in value significantly. And again, even if you're not, if you're in a two-color land, these are great. Yeah, like we're really spoiled. Like I'm going to miss when we don't have a, a dual land in every single pack. <laughs> like we're, we're ridiculously spoiled right now with how good our fixing is. Um, it's just a shame that we're not in a, you know, a 10-color pair set right now. Um, but yeah, like don't take for granted, you know, how good the dual lands are when you're counting up how many lands you need to play for your splash. And you'll talk about this a bit later, but like having three or four dual lands opens up so many possibilities. And if you run the numbers on your opening hands and what they look like, you know, if all your splash lands are, are dual lands that share color with your main two colors, you know, every hand you have is, is golden as long as you have enough lands in it. Like there's, there's very little cost to splashing in that case. Whereas, you know, if you're running, like you said, like three mountains, you know, the math gets very, very bad, very, very quickly, the more mountains you add to your green, white deck. So be aware of that, that, that these things go way up in value. If you have any idea of splashing. Mm -hmm. Agree. And I mentioned evolving wilds and variants thereof, Terramorphic Expanse being the main one. Um, this is a land that enters the battlefield. You can tap it and sacrifice it to search your library for a basic, put it into play tapped, and then shuffle. Uh, these fixes you. It finds you the, the splash land or one of your main colors. It is going to require that you play a basic of your splash color, right? But that means that as soon as you put the Evolving Wilds and the basic in for your splash, you've already got two sources. So if you can find another source somewhere else, that'll give you the magic number. And again, we'll get to that in a minute. But Evolving Wilds are really darn close to, to dual lands and tri-lands. They're, they're functionally almost the same thing, except it's not going to tap for either. It's going to go find you one. So you have to evaluate the rest of your hand and decide exactly what you want to get with it. Yeah, I have them just a, just a notch below you know, the, the, the dual tap lands. And the reason being is because I have to make a decision with my Evolving Wilds sometimes, whereas with dual lands, I usually don't. Like the only decision I'm making with the dual lands is at where am I playing it in my curve? Am I playing it on turn one or do I have a one drop? Am I playing it on turn two or do I have a two drop kind of thing? Whereas Evolving Wilds has that extra decision point of, well, I look at my hand, do I get my second planes for my white, white spells that I have in my deck or do I get my splash color 
thinking that I, I'm going to need that and I, I'll probably find another white source at some point. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's an opportunity to make a mistake there, um, but they both functionally, like dual lands and evolving wilds, functionally do the same thing in the long haul, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. But I think in the, in the pack, dual, dual goes a little bit higher than evolving wilds. It's pretty rare that we get both of those in the same format, though. It is. It is. O- often you'll see scenarios where evolving wilds are in a format with uncommon or rare lands that are producing two colors of mana. And if I'm ever in the spot where I'm, you know, playing that green, white deck splashing red, and there's a red, white duel or an evolving wilds, I'm just going to take the red, white duel and play that. Cause I, I mm-hmm. think it will be a little bit better for me, but it, it's worth mentioning that they function about the same way. These both take up land st- slots, not spell slots, which is pretty significant. I'm not casting a spell to get this benefit. I'm just putting a land in my deck it also sets me up for that magical situation where I'm playing 24 or 25 cards that I drafted when my opponent may be only be playing, you know, the, the 23, uh, which is kind of a big deal. And both of these are okay to play, even if you're not splashing. Uh, I put Evolving Wilds in most of my two-color decks just to smooth out my mana, and I can usually handle the tap land. And re- regardless of the format, obviously we're as we're recording this, Guilds of Ravnica is the main format. There's a lot of tap lands going around for the dual lands. But even when in other formats where they exist, I, I remember I think Shadows Over Innistrad was the last one where we had them at Uncommon. If I picked up one of those, I was putting it in my two color deck. Like why not have good mana? Exactly, and there's really no cost. There is the occasional cost when you draw a tap land and you really needed an untap land. Um, but you know, that, that's worth the risk of having good mana, obviously. So I think so too. Now we're still in the category of good fixing. We're just moving down a little bit from like the best fixing to still pretty dang good fixing. And next up are cards that search up a land. I've listed two of these that are colorless. So anything can play them and it's going to depend on the format, exactly what you get. And you'll see variants of cards like these. But these are two that we've seen a good bit throughout time, so I think they're good examples. The first one is Pilgrim's Eye, which is three for a 1-1 artifact creature flyer. When it enters the battlefield, you search your library for a basic land and put it into your hand. It doesn't come into play, it just comes into your hand. We've, we've seen this in formats where usually you could do something with it, and we've seen a variant of it in Dominaria. Uh, in the Skittering Surveyor. So you'll see cards like this a lot. But the idea is I can play this particular spell that gives me a body, usually not an amazing one, like three mana for a 1-1 flyer or three mana for a 1-2 isn't something that we're super excited about, um, but it's something that we'll probably play. And then it lets me either go get a land to guarantee a land drop or go get my splash land. I found that cards like these, this this one in particular, are usually better in, in slower sets where you want to hit all of your land drops anyway. So like it's interesting that we've seen Pilgrim's Eye and variants thereof in formats that were very mana intensive. It was in um, Eldritch Moon where you were looking to emerge off of it or get the lands to just cast your big Eldrazi that you had from the Shadows pack. It was in uh, Zendikar. Uh, I think it was actually Rise of the Eldrazi. It was one of those two where one of the themes was like cast big stuff. And then, of course, we saw the Skittering Surveyor in Dominaria. So these are usually pretty high picks if a format encourages splashing. And something that you may want to grab anyway, it, like I've played Skittering Surveyor in two-color decks, for example. And I, I would suspect that you have as well. Yeah, quite a bit. The The big upside is getting that 
extra land and, and hitting your fourth land drop in a you know in a format where you wanted to be casting haymakers let's say you know turn four turn five you really wanted to cast those cards on curve that's where cards like this kind of really shine um you have another one in here traveler's amulet and i'm thinking of one uh renegade map yeah these were also good you know either for fixing or to allow you to cheat a little bit on land depending on how much of a risk you wanted to take there i wouldn't necessarily do that all the time with my three drop fix or uh, searchers let's say um but the ones that were one and two drops you know i i would often play 16 lands with a renegade map um or with a traveler's amulet if i thought that you know i had a better card to put in than a 17th land you know or in a format where Maybe it's better to play 18 lands. You can play 17 in a Traveler's Amulet or something like that, right? So it gives you a different kind of flexibility, even if you're not using them to find your splash. Um, but one of my favorite hands in Dominaria was, like, three lands, a Skittering Surveyor, and just anything else, like a ham sandwich <laughs> in my hand. Yeah. Because I was I was always hitting my fourth land drop. I always had a three drop to play, and I would eventually, like, draw good fours and fives or two drops or whatever, um, and, and it would just kind of, it was, it was so consistent. It was easily one of the most consistent cards in any of my draft decks. Anytime I drafted it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good card. Pilgrim's Eye does the same thing. It's worth mentioning Traveler's Amulet because uh, this shows up time in and time out. Uh, Renegade map was a variant of that, but the amulet is one for an artifact. You can pay one and sack it to search your library for a basic land and put it into your hand. And many times in the formats where we've seen that, which I remember this in original Innistrad, I remember this in Theros, uh, I remember this in a couple others too, Hour of Devastation, I would usually play this with 16 lands and just count this as one of my lands. Because as long as I had another land in my opener, I could play it turn one, sack it turn two, get the second land and play it. And all it did was choke me up on playing a two drop that turn. Um, so like if, if I don't mind taking that little risk, I can fit an extra spell in the deck. Yeah, and it really only had the extra risk, you know, aside from not being able to play a two-drop, but of just having a one-lander where the Traveler's Amulet is your land instead of an actual land. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, most of the time, you know, on the play, let's say, you're mulliganing that hand anyway, so it didn't matter if it was a land or a Traveler's Amulet. I yeah. think the really only only time it hurts you is when you're on the draw, but, you know, that that's a risk. You can do the math on that one, and that's why we say, right, there's no cost to splashing. Well, there's no cost, you know, there's no cost to messing around with them. your mana base. There is a cost. And that's kind of what ma makes Magic the game that it is, is that RNG, like you always say, is buried in the mana system. It's buried in the land system. So doing whatever you can to smooth that out and make it as consistent as possible, you'll just steal wins off the back of just going, hitting all your lands and hitting your splash color on time and casting all your spells when your opponent's mucking around with their three color six 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 mana base or something like that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh and, and the next category for us as we move through mana searchers is ramp uh you'll usually find this in green although not always cards like rampant growth which is why this is called ramp uh is one in a green for a sorcery searcher library for basic land put it into play tapped you'll see variants of this on occasion Grow from the Ashes is a more recent variant of Rampant Growth. Uh, two for a green, search your library for a basic land, put it into play. You can also kick it for an additional two and get an additional land. Note that they don't come into play tapped on that one. And then Manalith, we've actually seen in several formats lately, which is an artifact. Uh, for three, you can tap it for any color of mana. It comes into play untapped. Now, for me, 
These cards are best when you want to ramp and splash, not just one or the other. They often require a color commitment, usually green. So notice two of those examples were green, only the Manalith was colorless, and we don't see Manalith every set, whereas nearly every set has some green card that lets you search your, your library for land and put it into play. So what I mean by ramp is like, I usually want to play these in decks where I'm splashing for something, maybe it's a Luminous Bonds, but I'm also interested in casting six and maybe a seven drop. So that's where cards like this really excel. They do let you splash, but you're, you're kind of playing them because you want them to hit on both sides. If you're only using it for one of them, like I don't think I would want to play Rampant Growth in a deck that's curved, stopped at five mana, and was splashing Illuminous Bonds. I'm probably better just being red-green aggro and, and getting rid of the splash and maybe even playing 16 lands because that, that extra land that I get off the Rampant Growth is, is really not going to do me good uh, for, for the, the, the late turns in the game. Yeah, I, I think it really depends on how expensive your ramp is, right? Like, if if it's a two-mana ramp spell, I'm usually a little bit better, or I feel a little bit better playing it in almost any deck, whether yeah. I'm ramping or not, because you're going to have four and five drops, and hitting a four drop on turn three is usually really good. It's the three drop ones, the three casting cost ones that really get me. Like, Grow From the Ashes, I would only play if I was splashing, which you frequently did in that format, mm -hmm. right? It was... And especially if you had access to Girl from the Ashes, like it was a reason to play green because you could play these powerful cards. Um, but like the difference between two and three when you're ramping is just huge. It's just it, just like the difference between one and two when you're playing elves is just huge. Um, so so kind of keep that in mind. Usually in a format, you don't have a choice. Yeah. Right. Like you're either getting rampant growth or you're getting Girl from the Ashes. Um, but just just kind of keep that in mind. And then Mana Lith is kind of like especially like that's just a. Like, at least grow from the ashes. If you kick it late game, it gets two lands out of your deck and gets you a little bit of that extra percentage on your next draw. But, like, Mana Lith just doesn't do anything if you have already ramped out all your cards and you don't need your fixing anymore because you hit your lands. Like, you know, there's a risk to putting these cards in your deck. So, obviously, the cheaper the better because casting them early and ramping out those fours and fives early can be a big game. Yeah, and, and we're going to talk some about the dangers of playing too many of these types of cards here in just a little bit. Now, I, I think those are kind of our premium fixers, and, and most of the good fixers that you'll see will fall into those categories. We obviously haven't mentioned every card that does these things, but I'm trying to give you some examples so that this episode will be useful if people are listening two years from now or tomorrow. Now, the next batch I've got is medium fixing, which is I'm probably not going to play these on their own, but I got a good splash, so I guess we can play this. Uh, there are cards like Sailor of Means. Now, Sailor of Means was using a specific mechanic from Ixalan block, but we'll see things like this pop up every once in a while. So I'll describe this particular card, and then you can use this as kind of an analog when you encounter an effect like this in the future. So Sailor of Means was two and a blue for a 1-4. When it entered the battlefield, you got a treasure token. You could sacrifice the treasure token for one mana of any color. So basically what we're talking about here is a one-time use effect that's either going to fix you or ramp you, but not both. And in this case, it requires you to be a specific color, which was blue. So like, you could splash cards specifically off of treasure producers in Ixalan, and I certainly did that, but there was a risk going for it. 
in that if you kind of got mana screwed and you didn't have enough mana, you had this real decision of, do I use my treasure token to cast my five drop, knowing that if I draw my splash card later, I can't cast it, or do I just let this token sit here? So like, this will fix you, but it's not always fixing you is the main thing I want you to understand with this one. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, people will say that Sailor of Means was such a great card. It was, it wasn't great because of the fixing or ramp. It was great because it was a 1-4 body that also fixed you and ramped you. So yeah. when we say medium fixing, it's really just from the perspective of being fixing. Like, Sailor Means was a great card, but it was great Certainly. for many reasons. Fixin' was just medium in this case. Yeah. It, it was good there because 3-3 three, three was the baseline stat for the format. So block the 3-3 exactly. three, three all day long. But you'll see one-time use effects like this as you bump into them. And just be aware that they come with that that problem. Now, I listed, I listed cards like Llanowar Envoy here as well. So Llanowar Envoy was two and a green for a 3-2. You could spend one and a green and get a, a mana of any color. So what's happening here is the fixing's actually kind of bad. I would not want that for my fixing. But the body's okay. So it was okay to play this. I'm not embarrassed to play three for a 3-2 in my green deck. Like, we're probably going to play those that can attack, it can block, it can trade off. So th this was something I might use to say splash an activated ability. We talked about Kazarov earlier. This would be really good at that. Or if I really want four sources for two cards, and we'll get into like how many sources do you need for what cards, I might just go ahead and count this for one. Because it's close. That's me being a little greedy. But when you're playing a card like this, evaluate the body and say, am I happy with this body? Because we've seen this effect on green cards kind of throughout Magic's history. And some of them were an atrocious rate, and the creature just wasn't good, so don't play it. But if the creature's good, go ahead and play it. Uh, do be aware, again, it's committing you to green for this. Which is a common theme in a lot of fixing. Yeah, and, and like there's a reason five-color green is a deck. Uh, Urban Utopia was just an example from the most recent set, but we've seen this style of effect all over the place. Uh, this is one in a green for an enchantment, enchant land, enchanted land taps for any color, draw a card. So this fixes you and replaces itself. It requires green, costs two mana, does not affect the board, and because, like, th I'm going to get into this a little bit here and we'll talk more about it later. Like, you've put this in your deck, you're spending two mana, it doesn't attack, it doesn't block, and if you're playing 17 lands and this is one of your spells, when you draw and you're drawing through your deck, you're probably go like, you're going to draw more land. So like, you, you need to be careful about putting too many non-action cards in your deck. You're probably looking to kill your opponent with creatures and to stop your opponent by killing you with removal spells. So like, you, you can't just be like, well, I need to splash so I'll put three urban utopias in my deck. That's actually kind of a problem. I need to splash and I've got two great duels and I have this urban utopia. Okay, we can talk. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that urban utopia replaces itself like helps, but there are versions of this that don't replace themselves. Um, and you're just taxing yourself at the cost of a card. And, you know, when every card is a premium and limited, you have to be very careful about effects like this sometimes. Yeah, agree. And then I listed another one. Um, we'll see stuff like this on occasion. Pillar of Origins was two for an artifact. When it comes into play, choose a creature type. 
tap for one mana of any color, but only use it to cast that type of creatures. So there's a lot of ifs here. This is good if you're ramping, and you're splashing, and you're tribal. So if you can tick off all three of those boxes, and again, this is this was in Ixalan, but we've seen cards like this in other formats, like you usually put this in your dinosaur deck, which was a deck that wanted to play three colors and was tribal. So if you had a good version of that where 12 of your creatures were dinosaurs and five of them were pretty expensive, this was a pretty dang good card in that deck. But in any other situation, it was kind of awful. You couldn't even really use it to splash a dinosaur in your vampire's deck because it would only let you cast that one card. So if you drew the pillar and didn't draw the dinosaur, it didn't help. So like, pay attention as you're, as you're looking at these like, how, how situational are the situations they're asking me for? And how likely is that to come up? So stuff like, like these particular ones, um, for the fixing aspect only, you usually want to pick these up later than those premium ones. And then I've got a, another category for us here of bad fixing. So this is like, I'll see people play these, and I understand they really want to splash, but it's one of those, you, you got to remember, maybe you shouldn't. Now, I'm going to clear you up in that I have played literally all of the cards I'm about to list to you. So, like, there are times when good drafts go bad and you got to do what you got to do. But these are some examples of cards that technically fix you, but are really not what you want to be doing. Navigator's Compass is a recent one from Dominaria, which was one for an artifact. When it enters a battlefield, you gain three life, and you can tap it to turn one of your lands into the basic land type of your choice until end of turn. Why is this bad fixing, Mr. Seville? Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. It can be any color. And I you gain splash, three life. I can splash anything. You can, and I have. I played a deck with 17 lands, two navigators, compass, and five divinations. And everything else in that deck was a haymaker. And it was whatever color I wanted it to be. And it was actually pretty good. No, it's, um, you'd be better off just putting your splash, like, another copy of your splash basic land in the deck, because the number of times that you're using this, you know, to play one of your main colors is, it's got to be close, as close to zero as possible. Yeah. Um, and if you're only playing it for your splash, why not just play a land and play 18 lands instead, where if it's in your opening hand, then it's a land and you don't have to waste, you know, a turn casting this, you can just play your land. Yeah, the, the the real downside here is that it's costing you a card to do it, and it's not ramping you. So it's only fixing you, and the three life isn't really worth a card. The fixing isn't really worth a card. Now again, I've played it, and there are some circumstances that will make bad ramp playable. Um, you're just not going to encounter it very often, so you really want to avoid this card if you can. I had to put Terrarian on here for friend of the podcast, Tommy. Um, because he argues vehemently that this is not fixing, and I also don't think that it is. Uh, Terrarian is an artifact. We've seen it in a couple different sets. It's one for an artifact, enters the battlefield tapped. You can spend two, sacrifice it, add two mana of any color to your mana pool, and draw a card. So we've seen a lot of people say they're going to fix with a Terrarian, but the real issue with it is, is that you're spit just like Navigator's Compass, you're, you're getting stuck tying up a card and you're fixing. But as soon as you go to get that card back, you use you lose the fixing. So you get this really awkward scenario where you just have nothing to do 
and you're like, well, I'll sacrifice my Terrarian and hope I draw my splash card. And then you don't, and you draw it later and you can't cast it. So Terrarian can be good in formats where artifacts matter, or we also saw it in Shadows Over Innistrad, where getting an artifact into your graveyard was kind of a big deal because that was one of the mechanics for that set. So you could sort of count this as half of a source when you were splashing in Shadows Over Innistrad because you probably wanted the effect anyway. But outside of scenarios like that, you really didn't want to rely on something like Terrarian for your fixing because it's just not dependable. Yeah, and, and that's a that's a trap that I think a lot of drafters fall into, right? Is is maybe they get the idea of why they should be splashing, but they don't understand that the the cost to splashing and playing a card like Terrarian just ramps that up. Like it, the difference between Terrarian and a dual land is like I don't even know how to start calculating that because it's close to infinite, right? A, a card that I will never put in a deck versus a card I will put in every deck. Um, just it, be aware. It can be tough to evaluate, especially the card like Navigator's Compass, where sometimes in Dominaria artifacts mattered or historical cards mattered. Um, and with Terrarian, right, sometimes Graveyard mattered and you wanted that extra type in your yard. Um, but quite frequently, it, the cost is just not worth it. You know, this actually reminds me of when I went to uh, pre-release for Shadows Over Innistrad. There was an X-Burn spell. It was a Banefire variant, whatever. And I, I sat down and I, I played my matches and it was at Island Games in uh, Centerville, Virginia. Shout out to Island Games. And one of the opponents that I played against seemed very new and was kind of just didn't seem like they knew what they were doing. And I, I was friendly. They were friendly. And at the end, they said, will you look at my deck and tell me if I built it right? And I, I was like, I would love to do that. And I never offered to do that. I feel like it might be insulting. But this dude was like, he could tell I knew what I was doing. And I looked and he was splashing that red burn spell off of a mountain. That was his plan was I'll, I've got a mountain in the deck and I've got this. And I was like, that's, that's not how that works. It's really not how this works. Let me help you out. Uh, so I, I got him a couple mountains in there and a terrarian, which he had in there because he also had some delirium cards. And I was like, let's let's get you to where you could potentially actually cast this in your black green deck. Um, so it, it can be a part of a fixing package if it's doing other things for you. But don't rely on this to be your only fixing. Yeah, the more things that your fixing does, like has a body or fixes for multiple colors like in the in the form of a dual land right the better that it is if it's just a single purpose you know it's it's not as good yeah and i, I want to mention these lands there's lands like this one that pop up quite often shimmering grotto is a land that taps for colorless and you can spend one mana and tap it to get a mana of any color so that means to get colored mana out of this you always have to spend an extra mana for it so if I want to cast a 4-drop, but I need the Shimmering Grotto to filter, I actually need 5 lands. So this will fix you, but it's at a pretty high cost because it's messing up your mana for your other spells. So if, if I draw a tap land and a green source, I can play my green 2-drop. If I draw a mountain and a Shimmering Grotto, I can't play my green 2-drop. I can play a green 1-drop on turn 2, but I probably don't have one. So like, this one floats between medium and bad, I played it quite frequently in original Innistrad because I needed to flashback my spider spawning and the format was relatively slow, all things spoken. And there was a version of this in Amonkhet that was actually not playable in Amonkhet 
But once we got into Hour of Devastation, this one happened to have the subtype Desert, which was a land type that mattered. There were certain cards that would search them up, and it was also a lot slower. Then all of a sudden, it, it moved from bad to playable. So like these kind of dance between medium and bad, but generally speaking, if I can do anything else to splash other than play a Shimmering Grotto or an Unknown Shores or any of these cards that do the same thing, I'm going to avoid doing that. Yeah, the tax just feels bad to cast your spells. And even in the case of, like, you just need it to play your double green card, you, you can't even do that. So, um, yeah, I, I try to avoid these in a lot of draft sets. Sometimes I'll play them, but I'm usually looking for better fixing. Yeah, this, this is like a fail case. Like, I've got two good fixers. I really need my splash. Fine, Shimmering Grotto, it's your time to shine. Exactly. Uh, it, it is worth mentioning, too, as we're talking about splashing, your main colors are probably going to have double casting costs in them. So in that green-white deck where I'm splashing Banefire, it's not uncommon for some of those spells to be like two white-white, three green-green. I need to make sure I can get multiple sources of my main colors while still reaching that splash color. Yep. And then how many sources do you need for your splash? So... I, I was actually kind of writing this essay, as Dave mentioned, while I was on stream, and somebody asked when I came out with these numbers, are you just making these up? And I was like, well, I, I'm not, but these, these are numbers that I've heard a lot of good limited players say, and then tested and played with, and it just kind of feels right. And then somebody actually ran the math uh, while we were there on stream, I have an abnormal number of mathematicians that enjoy watching my stream. <laughs> like I've got some real math pros in there and they, I, I don't actually remember what the math was or the equation was, but they confirmed this to be correct. So if you're interested, come by the stream and start talking about it. One of those mathematicians will be there and can hook you up. You need three sources for one card and three and a half sources for two cards. I mean, that's kind of the numbers that I've always really played with. Sometimes I play two, sometimes I play four. It really depends on how many tap lines I have and if I have an Evolving Wilds. So it, it also it, depends on how much risk you're comfortable with. Because mm -hmm. Ray, who has come on the podcast before, is a good friend of mine and an excellent limited player. Very rarely splashes, but when he does, he does it with two sources for one card with the idea that if I don't get there, I, I'll just, I'll accept that. that That's the risk I'm taking going into this. But to, to, to reliably hit the sources you need to cast the card at some point during the game, three will guarantee it for one card. And I'll get into what the three and a half means in a minute. Now, people might ask, like, what do you mean a source? Like, how do you count your sources? Well, th there's a couple of ways to count your sources. One is you just count your lands. Right. So if you have three green white duels, you have three green sources and three white sources between those. Um, so when you're counting your sources, you're going to end up usually with more than the 17 lands that you have in your deck, especially if you run a lot of dual lands. So keep that in mind. You're also counting sources like uh, Evolving Wilds obviously counts for any of your colors when you're counting it as a source. Your Pilgrim's Eye or your Traveler's Amulet count those as sources. Um, you know, you count. If you have a Shimmering Grotto, for example, you would count that as a source as well. Those are what we mean when we say counting sources. So you go through all of your land, all of your spells. You know, do you have a Farseek? Do you have a Rampant Growth? Count that as a source. And then you total all of that up and you end up with a number at the end that I have. Great, I have four red sources. Not four mountains, four red sources. 
and I'm okay splashing this Banefire off of four red sources. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, Dave actually hinted at this earlier when he said that a card like Tatiova that's going to let you draw extra cards actually sort of helps with another splash because you're going to see more of your deck. We ran the math on this this as well in, in the stream. A card like Divination is about a fourth of a source because you're going to see so much more of your deck that you're likely to get to those sources to cast it. Now, that doesn't mean that in my blue deck I can just put in six Divinations and a splash card and be fine. Obviously, you still need the mana source to draw the mana source. So we're not saying that it does that. I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't play two basics and a bunch of divinations. And then you also have to be careful, and I've hinted at this before too, like if I have a deck with three mana lists and three divinations, I can pretty much splash whatever I want. But at that point, I've got 21 mana sources and three card draw spells. So it's pretty likely that I'm casting a lot of stuff that's not attacking or blocking, and I may very well be dead uh, before I get to resolve any of those spells. So like... That's the true cost of, of ramping or splashing and that sort of thing, is if you're doing too much of this derping around and not affecting the board, it's really going to hurt you, which is just kind of driving home that point about how good the dual lands are, because they're going to let you do that splash without spending a spell slot on it, which makes you less likely to flood. So, like, you can count card draw as a little bit of a source, and I've been known to splash two cards with three sources and a divination and say, meh, it's good enough. But that's me accepting the risk of if I play seven rounds with this deck, I'm probably just going to straight up lose a game because my mana's bad. Yeah, I think the number one thing that I see when I play Magic against new players at the LGS, like at the pre-release or something like that, is, and, and especially the people that are complaining about their luck, are the people that are playing you know, not enough sources for their splashes or too many sources for their splashes, or their mana base is just all out of whack and they're trying to you know, play three colors with a five, five, seven mana base or whatever. And, and I think knowing how to count your sources, it doesn't just apply to splashing, but it also applies just to playing your deck in general, right? Like knowing what colors you need early versus what colors you need late. You know, what do you have doubles of? How many dual lands do you have? And being able to count your sources and estimate, you know, how many, how many sources, how many, how many of these pips can you cover in in your mana base is is really important and um, i think it's an underrated skill that i think a lot of people just after you've played a bunch you kind of just inherently get but i think we take for granted that new players you know might not understand how to properly build a mana base i mean we have arena now that just you can click and it just kind of gives you a hint and that's great um but it's a it's a real skill i think uh for for beginners to learn sure like i would wager to say that if you've been playing for more than a year and haven't had a draft deck whose mana base was 10-7, you're not building your mana bases right. Because a lot of draft decks that I get are actually very heavy in one color and kind of just lightly touching the other. So if I've got a deck where all of my two drops are black, I've got double black and a couple late game spells that are single white, that's an easy 10-7 mana base for me. Sometimes an 11-6, depending on how much of it there is. And if you've never played that mana base, you've had a deck that wanted that mana base. So there's times you should have. So pay attention to this even when you're not splashing. That's a good point, Dave. Mm -hmm. Now, I've, I've got some traps as kind of a wrap-up for us here. Some things that I have seen people do. And we, we've mentioned some of these, but I want to kind of hit these four points just to kind of put a bow on this. A famous one that I've, I've, caught, I've even caught myself doing this before is splashing for fixing. 
playing Grow From The Ashes in my black-red deck so I can splash a blue card. You ever done this one? Uh, no, I, I can't say that I've made this mistake before. Yeah, sure. You've played limited, you've made this mistake. <laughs> but it, it's one of those things where you're like deep in pack two, and you're like, well, we're we're obviously green-red. And then you look at your green cards, and you're like, all my green cards are doing is fixing me. There's no reason for me to be green. I've got three Grow From the Ashes and Alanawar Envoy, but like, why am I green? To splash the blue cards? Just get rid of the green and play the blue cards. It's way better. And like once you you figure out that trap, you're like, okay, I, I would I would play I would splash in my green deck because I have good green cards and the ability to splash and something to splash. If I've got the something to splash and the ability to splash, but not the good green cards, just cut the green cards and play the play those other two colors. I have seen a lot of people try to splash double pips in a casting cost. An example I listed here was a Vampire Sovereign, but anything works. That's three black black for a three four flyer. When it enters the battlefield, drain your opponent for three. You can't splash double pips. Now, there are formats where you can play multiple colors. So in Hour of Devastation, where Gifts of Paradise was common, maybe we can talk. But generally speaking, I've seen people building mana bases where like they're, they're trying to splash a Vampire Sovereign in their white-blue deck, and I'm like, this is just not going to happen for you. Yeah, it's just... You think of all the times when you don't have your splash, and you only have a single pip that you need to cover. Now, add in the fact that you need to have both, right? It's that same scenario on steroids. It's um, The numbers just don't work out. There's a very rare card that I would double, like, double splash for, or sorry, splash for a double pip, but I recognize that I am taking a very serious risk, but I I feel that the risk is worth it. And I think the only example that I, I can think of recently is, I know you said that this is a bad example of, or this is an example of not a card you're splashing for, is Glorybringer. I think I would probably do it for Glorybringer because it was such a dumb card. Um, but I would have to be base green, probably playing cards like you know, Gift of Paradise or whatever was in that format. I, I don't remember what it was. It was. Um, and, and, I, and I'm and i taking a very specific risk doing so. Um, and it might not even be the correct risk. It's just Glorybringer. It's just a lot of fun. There, there's that. And it's okay to play for fun. And I actually did splash for Glorybringer plenty of times in Hour of Devastation. But that featured two pop packs of Oasis Ritualist, which tapped for two color of any mana as well as one pack of Gift of Paradise, which allowed you to enchant a land to tap for two co color of any mana. So Hour yep. of Devastation was a unique format that allowed you to splash double-colored casting cost spells, which was actually kind of neat. Now, you couldn't really splash the Glorybringer in Ket, which was a base one, because you couldn't play a deck with three um, Gifts of Paradise, or you were just dead by then because your opponents were running over you and that didn't replace itself. But adding in that o Oasis Ritualist actually made that strategy work, which was part of what made it fun. But outside of fringe formats like Hour of Devastation, when you when you run the math on how many sources you need to reliably cast a card like Vampire Sovereign, you end up with seven. You'd need to get seven sources in your, your white-blue deck of black mana to pull that off. And you're just not doing that, which means you're not reliably casting the card which means it's probably just better to leave that one in your sideboard. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think that a big trap is for splashing for more than two cards. 
Obviously, this is format dependent. Like some some formats we've mentioned encourage splashing more. But if you're trying to splash three cards, three red cards in your green-white deck, for example, this is probably going to hinder your ability to play cards of your main colors more so than it's going to help you there. Because you get to the point where you'd probably like five sources to fit in there. Now, rarely the stars will align and allow you to do that with dual lands, but that's usually because it's a specific format that has dual lands at common. Yeah. Keep in mind that every land that you take away from your main colors makes it like it's well every land that you add is your splash you're taking away from your main colors so when you go you know what's a good example here 10 or uh, 9 6 1 right so 9 and 6 in your main colors uh or 9 7 in your main colors and then 1 in your splash color if you bump that up to 2 you have to take that away from somewhere so do you need the the 9 in your main color to cast your double casting cost pips uh, or do you take it away from your secondary color and then now you're basically splashing both of those colors? So it's like as you increase that, you have to just be aware that you're taking away from everything else. And that's why the the 666 mana base is just so terrible and so inconsistent, generally speaking. Yeah. And it, it also makes it harder to cast the... Because either you do that and you make it difficult to cast the spells of your main colors, or you don't do that and you're trying to play you know three cards with two sources and you're never going to be able to play those two cards. So whichever way you juggle it, that one's not going to work out. And then the the last trap I mentioned is splashing for cards. You don't need just because you can. I had a stream viewer come to me and they were playing a blue white deck. They had seven removal spells in it. I think four of them were luminous bonds. Uh, And like luminous bonds is an issue in arena right now, but whatever they had four luminous bonds, two of the blue enchantment based removal and one other one, I can't remember what it was. I think it was a Hieromancer's Cage. And they were trying to splash two Lich's Caresses and a Strangling Spores. I was like, the Lich's Caress, you're not actually going to be able to splash because it's double colored. It's three black black for a kill anything spell. And then Strangling Spores just didn't make sense to splash. Because they, they could do it. I think they had a couple of the Submerged Boneyards. So they, they could do that and put a Swamp or two in here. But like when you've already got seven solid removal spells in your main colors, splashing for a non-premium, Strangling Spores is three and a black, target creature gets minus three, minus three. It's not bad, and I'm always going to play it if I'm black, but I don't think I'm really splashing for it, especially if I've got seven just good removal spells in the colors I'm playing. So I, I, I told that viewer, just take out those three black cards and add in literally anything that's white or blue, and this deck is going to be better. And then they showed me the list after doing that. And I was like, yeah, this is way better because you'll be able to consistently cast that. So just like splashing requires the fixing, yes, but it also requires the need for you to splash. You're wanting to put something in your deck that you don't have. A bomb that's going to win you the game or removal because you're short. If you've already, like, I can't think of a bomb that's splashable that I'm not splashing for. We're just going to do that. But like, I'm not going to splash for, you know, a little bit of card draw. Like, that doesn't actually make sense to me. I can probably find that in my colors, or my colors aren't interested in doing that. And I'm not going to splash for the eighth removal spell once I've already got seven solid ones. So just bear in mind that, like, just because you can splash doesn't mean you should. I think that's a great rule of thumb. And so concludes our class. You are now an associate professor of splashing. Go forth and spread the word. Go forth and teach. We should come up with some kind of like mantra or something, some kind of code of conduct for all of our students. I agree. 
I agree. All right. That was a great, great topic. We've been talking about doing that for a while. I'm glad that you were able to put the time in on your stream and come up with the essay. I think it's it's great. Um, it's something that I take for granted, right? Like, I obviously had to learn it. I think I learned a lot through trial and error and listening to other people talk about it and teaching me. Um, and I think I'm in a pretty good space now. So pretty happy with where I'm at with splashing. But I think this was just good to reiterate for the newer players um, or maybe the intermediate players that are struggling with their game. And you will definitely get wins with consistent mana if you play against opponents that don't have consistent mana. And I think that's the biggest takeaway here is that consistency will win a lot of games in limited um, and inconsistency will lose you a lot of games in limited. Yeah. When in doubt, I tend to go for the consistent deck if possible. Now, if, if you're at a Grand Prix and you have to win, like I may build a deck that's a little bit greedier and cross my fingers because like my win percentage over my lifetime doesn't matter. It just matters. Do I win these eight rounds? Right. So if, if you're, you know, drafting on arena for fun, but F and M is serious business for you and you really need to beat Billy cause he's a jerk, like feel free to go in whatever direction you want. And same if, if it's fun for you and you have a pet card and you're like, I'm just going to play this. I had the curse of the river hoopo. That's my favorite card in Hour of Devastation. And if I open one or get past one, we are playing it. I don't care what I have to do to the mana base. We're putting that in the deck. That's going to happen. So, like, I understood when I did that it wasn't always correct. Well, actually, I still don't understand that it wasn't always correct. It was always correct. But I knew that I lost games because I was doing that, and I was okay with it. So play Magic how you want. But if you want to be competitive and win more games, follow these rules for splashing, and I think you'll be happy. I agree. All right. Well, thanks for that. And uh, thanks to all our listeners once again. Thanks to Face to Face Games for the host and all the support. And where can they catch you drafting Ultimate Masters this week? You can find me at twitch.tv slash Simulin. I'm on Twitter under the same at Simulin, S-E-M-U-L-I-N. And I'm at twitch.tv at dcivillian, that's D-S-A-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. And I'm on Twitter the same as well. You can also follow us on Twitter at men for moto We're just at men for moto Once again, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Adios.